0: Uh, well, good to see you again, Ben. Thank you for leading us and worship team. And some Sundays we're just ready to roll, and I'm almost ready to dismiss you and say, "Have an awesome week." Uh, so really appreciate, really appreciate that. Well, you found us in uh, part two of a series we're calling "Abolished, You Are Free," and I have a question for you to begin. How many procrastinators do we have in the room here this morning? Don't point to your spouse. How many of you? Yeah, we're thinking about raising your hand, but wanted to wait till I ask it a second time. <laughs> There we go. All right, we got a couple others. So here was my experience in school. I don't know if this is your experience, but I would walk into almost every semester in college in particular and think, this semester. This is a semester where I'm not going to get behind, where I'm actually going to get work done, and I might even get things done ahead of time. And this is a semester that I'm going to use break, fall break, or spring break to actually get things done so that at the end of the semester, I'm not totally crazy and lose sleep and get sick and all that stuff. So what would happen? Next semester, I'm going to do that. I'm sure. I'm sure I'm going to get it done next semester. And there almost became this sense for me of inevitable shortcoming that would chase down my will and get me. It almost felt like that, like, yeah, I'm going to try it again next semester, but I know myself too well to think that I can actually get that done. Can anybody relate to that problem at all, at any level? Okay, so don't we see this? Don't we see this when we start to feel this sense of inevitable? It almost becomes this way. Sometimes we can feel like the most powerful force in the universe is my inevitable shortcoming. It can almost, almost feel that way. Sometimes, can it? That like that inevitable shortcoming is going to get you. It's going to get you. It's going to get me. Don't bother. Don't bother. Trying again. Don't. Don't bother. Next semester stuff, just own it. Like, I can't tell you how many people have told me, and you probably heard them say, you know, sometimes I'd love to run a marathon, but I know I'm not going to. Right? Like, sometimes I'd love to read that book, but I'm not a reader. Sometimes I'd love to, whatever, travel there, but it's probably never going to happen. Sometimes I'd love to kick the habit but that's probably never going to. Sometime I'd love for our marriage to be, but that's probably never going to be. Sometime I'd love my future to be, but that's probably never going to be. Sometimes it can feel like the most inevitable force in the universe is my inevitable shortcoming. It's the most powerful force that seems to come. And here's the problem. I think we all feel this when that happens is that when that really settles into our soul and spirit, depression settles in, lack of passion and creativity settle in, lack of production at work settles in, lack of hope, uh, vision, a passivity settles in, mediocrity becomes normal, and we lose an edge that I think God has created us for. But in order to get out of this world, a turnaround is required. And turnarounds are hard work, aren't they? Turnarounds are hard. Turnarounds happen because we've seen sports teams go from worst to first, right? We've seen businesses go from failing quarter after quarter, all of a sudden figuring out how to turn it around. We've even seen people around us, sometimes to a degree ourselves, turn it around. But it always requires something special and different, doesn't it? It always requires doing something different. And here's the problem with that, that we often know that in order for me to turn it around, I'm going to have to do something, and I don't know if I can trust myself to hope again that something can change. And here's what I want to stop and talk about with you this morning. If you're, if you're a Christian, if you're not, listen in to how Christians might think. Okay, If you're a Christian, here's what I think the Bible teaches us. Not this, but I think the Bible teaches us this, that God's inevitable grace is more powerful than my inevitable shortcoming. This is what I think the Bible teaches us, that it's almost like God's inevitable grace will chase down my inevitable shortcoming from behind and catch it every time. That as if my inevitable shortcoming is there, and it may never, hear me well on this, may never totally go away, but that at the end of the day, God's inevitable grace is inevitable for the Christian. It is even more inevitable than my potential shortcoming or my realized shortcoming. And I would love, love, love this morning for you, to pause for a moment, because here's the reality. The hardest turnaround to experience is the turnaround of the person who stares back at yourself in the mirror in the morning, believing again that my shortcoming, whether that's a known sin habit that you're in, or just a general failure or disappointment in what, where you're at in your stage of life, or... A shame in where you have been in the recent past, whatever that might be, that whatever that shortcoming is, it's kind of telling you and whispering to you, things will never change, you will never, and don't even bother, and your spouse will never. Like I would love, 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 if you're a Christian, to reframe that voice in your head to this, rather than what I had up here earlier, that God's inevitable grace will chase down and is a more powerful force than your inevitable shortcoming. Now, I want to look at a passage of scripture with you this morning that I think teaches this. This isn't just something I picked out of my brain, but this is something that I think is taught directly in the scripture we're going to be in this morning. We are in the book of what we call Romans, not we call it the It's in the the Bible, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans, the sixth book in what we call the New Testament. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there to Romans, chapter five is where we are at. Now, if you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew around you. That's our gift to you. We'd be glad to have you take that Bible home with you if you would like. Um, and you should know, if you've never been in Romans before, or this is kind of your first entree into Romans, Romans can be a little funky. It can be a little difficult to understand what Paul is writing. And so I'm going to do my best to try to make clear what might be a little more complex. It was, It is uh, hands down the most uh, theologically robust um, book or letter written in what we have in the New Testament, hands down. And so at any point, if you feel like this morning, like, I don't know what he just read. You are in good company, and I will do my best to try to explain it. Um, you should know, by the way, I, in my preparation for this, one of the commentaries I was reading earlier this week um, had a uh, reaction to something that was said here, and I read the commentator's comment on it eight times. I was like, that is so good that I have no idea what he said. I am totally, totally confused. So if you ever run into confusion this morning, uh, for what it's worth, maybe I'll say welcome to the club, but I'll do my best to try to make things as clear as we can, all right? Romans chapter 5, um, beginning at verse 12, going through verse 21 this morning, okay? So Paul is writing, and he says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, the death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Got it? Got it. We're going to start with some bad news first, okay? We're going to start with some bad news. But it's necessary news for us to keep moving in life. Here's the the bad news. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 alone is honestly a terrible offense to American society. Here's what verse 12 says. Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men, because all sinned. Through one man. Verse 12 introduces a concept that many have written about as a, 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 um, an offense to reason. <laughs> in other words, how many of y'all have ever been a part of a group project in school? Let me go back to the school motif. How many of y'all have ever been a part of a group project? How many of you have loved group projects? How many of you have ever felt like, I'm so glad because someone smarter is going to carry me through this group project? Don't raise your hand on this one. Carry me through the group project. Here's what happens in group projects. It's like there are a few people who actually enjoy the dynamic, but then there's a lot of people who are like, this is crazy because so-and-so, I'm always going to get the sandbagger in the group. He's not going to do anything, and then I'm going to have to do more work to pull them through the thing, right? Right now, if you're the sandbagger, you're like, that's why I love group projects. I don't have to do anything, okay? And group projects introduce this idea of a corporate grade. Everybody gets graded the same, whether you've done the work or not. And that's why people who like, really like to work hard and be like, super excessive in their work are like, I hate that. Here, in a way, is a model for what Paul is talking about in verse 12. If he's saying one person sinned, therefore we're all guilty. One person failed in the project to do what they were supposed to do. Everyone gets an F. To which every member of the group is like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, I-, I didn't do that. Just because he didn't do the reading means that we all fail? Like, just because they didn't do that part means we, yep, but I, but I did good things. Yep. And this is what Paul teaches, and this is an offense to an individualized American society. And Paul is just saying, listen, sin has entered the world through one man. You all are sinners. <laughs> Welcome to the world. And this is, this is offensive. Can you imagine a first-grade teacher who would look at their class like every year and say, I do not enjoy teaching you because you guys are a bunch of sinners. I don't enjoy teaching you because I know that you're going to be rowdy. Well, how do I know that? Because last year's class was rowdy. It has nothing to do with this class. Or even worse, you know, 25 years ago, when I started teaching, there was one kid in class who cussed me out. Therefore, now I hate every student here. And every student is going to be like this. So every class is going to be like We would call that teacher a terrible, terrible teacher. Because you don't judge someone else's future based on someone else's past, right? Like, it's just Terrible. But that's exactly what Paul is saying is happening in humanity. Adam sinned, therefore you and me, the Bible is going to call sinners. To which I'm going to say, that's an offense to reason. It's just crazy. I didn't do anything. Like, I was just born. Yep. And this is the bad news. Now, let's think about this for a minute. Here's the big reaction to this. This isn't fair, right? This isn't fair. You didn't do anything, I didn't do anything, but here we're labeled as sinners because of Adam's sin. Are you kidding me? It isn't fair. And here's what I'd say, I agree with you. And here's what I'd also say, just because something isn't fair doesn't mean it's not true. Right? Just because something isn't fair doesn't mean it's not true. I would say that God has never shown an interest in the Scriptures in saying, I am a God who wants to be fair. God doesn't say that. He says, I'm a God who wants to be just, and I'm good and I'm the definition of love, but he does not say I want to be fair. Listen, it may not be fair that I don't have hair, but it's true, right? It may not be fair that you have to do something with your hair, but it's true. I don't have to do that. I save so much time in my life because of that. <laughs> Just because something isn't fair doesn't mean it's not true. Now, let me ask this, though. What else explains the reality that every Toddler, known to man, has a problem sharing their toys with their playmate. Where do they learn that from? What explains that every society in the history of humanity ends up with a conception of good and evil, right and wrong? What explains that? Except this reality that in the nature of humanity, we have been fundamentally changed as a people when Adam sinned and sin entered human nature. And so rather than me being offended by it, it is a gift to me to help me understand why we are the way we are. Is it fair? That's the wrong question. Is it true? Is the right question. Is it true? And I think it is. Paul goes on to clarify this a little bit further in verses 13 and 14. Look at that. He said, For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin was not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. What he's saying is you and I don't become sinners because we disobey the law, In other words, let me go to the toddler room for a minute. The toddler, the very first time the toddler rips the toy, the car, whatever, rips the toy away from their playmate, very first time they do that, let's just call that sin, being selfish, ripping from someone else, something's rightfully theirs, I want it now for me, I don't care if you're crying, mine. very first time they do that, that is not when they become a sinner. They did that because they were a sinner, before they even acted out their sin. And that's what Paul is teaching, that the nature of humanity is sinful itself. So the act of sin doesn't make me a sinner. I act in sin because I am a sinner. Okay? Now, churches have been notorious for making this um, really annoying and um, really heavy-handed spiritually. Churches have been notorious for really being heavy on this, and that's not how I feel. I feel like this is a gift of clarity for reality. This helps me see this is who we are. I think we can teach this and communicate this and be very gracious and loving. And so do I think little children, even infants and toddlers, are born in sin? Yeah. Do I still love them? Yeah. Do I think that God, that makes me some terrible person who thinks everybody's terrible? No. Like, I think Jesus communicated this. If you remember, you may not remember, but there's a story in the Bible when Jesus um, interacts with a woman caught in adultery. And the religious leaders bring her to him. And he's kind of in the temple area, and they bring her up to him. And they lay her before him, and there's this big moment, and they say, what are you going to do? She was caught in adultery. It's clear what you should do according to the law. Stone the woman. And Jesus, if you remember his comment, he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Let's go. To which they all like, oh, and walk away. Moment diffused because it's clear that we all have sinned. And so we can communicate and talk about the sinfulness of humanity without being jerks or hating people. Like we love people nonetheless. This is clarity. Does that make sense? Like this is clarity about who we are and how we function. Now it doesn't end there. That's the bad news that sin has come into the world and changed the nature of who we are, which is why. There's this deep feel and pull for you and for me that next semester I will not procrastinate, oh, but I think I probably will. Next semester I won't, but I think I probably will because that's part of the, the nature of these the shortcomings that feel so inevitable that they're going to come. But it doesn't end there. Not for the Christian. That is all the hope we have, by the way, if we are outside of faith in Christ. But if we have faith in Christ, there's something dramatic that has happened. Look at verses 15 and on here. Okay, Verse 15. But the gift... Is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Okay, again, a lot there. Really simply, Paul is introducing this idea that the trespass of sin introduced to humanity, a changed nature and sin. Welcome to the reality in which we now live. But the gift is not like the trespass. The gift is given to people who are in sin and reverses course, changes course, undoes, attempts to undo what has been done, and gives back to all of us the very thing that we want, which is we may not put it this way, but we want justification. We want to be made right. We want life to be full in its wholeness. And Paul is saying the gift isn't like the trespass, like we have changed this. The gift is kind of undoing and giving to those who believe this gift that changes from condemnation to justification. He puts it this way in verses 18 and 19. Consequently, Just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. So here's the thing. Through Adam, our nature is changed, and we are sinners through that. And Paul's introducing this idea. Through Jesus Christ... Through his righteousness, we are all made right through him. Now, let me ask you this. Is that fair? It's not fair. See, that's the other side of the not fair coin, right? That's not fair either. Because if you're honest, and if I'm honest, I don't deserve to be looked at by God, the, the holy and righteous, outside of the mess of my sin, God, and be declared righteous. Not with all that I've thought. Not with all that I've done. Not with all the failings and failures of me. That's not, honestly, if I'm honest, it's not fair. It's not what I deserve. But again, something can be true, even if it isn't fair. And this is why God isn't interested in the fair game. It's not fair. It's not fair. Grace is not fair. It was never intended to be fair. But it's good. It's just, it's kind of like um, saying, see, in our, in our world, we have a problem with, with corporate failure. Here's how we play, but we, we don't have a problem with corporate wins. In other words, uh, if you're a sports fan, let's say you're a Phillies fan. Remember back in the day they won the pennant? They won the World Series about 2002, something in that range? I don't know. Some, yeah, okay. So back in '02, listen, here's how the language went. We won the World Series. No, we didn't. They won the World Series, right? Like, no, we didn't. Like, I didn't play. I didn't pitch. I didn't throw. I didn't bat. I didn't do anything, right? But in that the language, we won. Like, we are cool to celebrate corporate wins. That's no problem. Like, the corporate win thing, let's do it all day, all day long. We won today. Hey, did the Phillies win or lose last night? They lost. Right, it's not we lost, right? It's like they lost. Like, we don't want the corporate loss attached to us. I didn't do anything. Like, yeah, they're having a bad season. Oh, yeah, we won. This, like, we don't like the corporate negativity, but we're cool with the corporate wins. And here's what, what Paul's saying. There is a corporate win that you can get behind. Like, we win through Christ. Like, stand on that. It's not fair, but it's true. So here's another way to put it. Our shortcomings lead to feelings of condemnation. This is what I felt every semester going into college. Like, man, again, here I am. Week 12 of 16, and I have 14 papers due tomorrow. You know, I didn't do it. I didn't do what I thought I was going to do. Leads to feelings of condemnation. Our, our shortcomings lead to that. Sometimes it is legitimate sin that we just do the wrong thing. We know it. And we beat ourselves up over it. Sometimes it's just failure and shame. Sometimes it's honestly, it's things in the past that have been dogging you for a while. And maybe it's in your marriage and it's still there living as a thing between you that continues to come up and remind you and remind your spouse sometimes. Yeah, he's probably going to do that again. And she's probably going to again. These shortcomings lead to feelings of condemnation. And they lead to the edge being worn off of you and the vision gone and the passion gone and the energy gone and depression setting in, productivity going down. It leads to that. And here's what Paul is saying. God's grace should lead to reminders of justification. That as easily and quickly as our shortcomings remind us of our condemnation, God's grace should chase that down and remind you of justification. So as quickly as the thought comes, yeah, I'm probably not going to, I probably never will, she probably will, he probably, I don't know if I can trust again. As soon as those come. For the Christian, if, with Adam, Sin came into human nature. So too, with Christ, grace and righteousness should come and overtake the feelings of condemnation. And when it doesn't, you're going to have to ask yourself, and I'm going to have to ask myself, why am I living in a situation that God has already taken care of? Why am I condemning myself for something that he no longer condemns me for. Now, let me carry on before I draw this quite to a close. Verse 20. Paul finishes this little section here in verses 20 and 21. He says this, The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to illustrate this to you this way. A couple weeks ago, I was... um, at the factory house, factory ministry, just down the road uh, from here, and I was about to leave their building, okay? And as I walk out, here's what I saw. A light switch with the words, keep up, labeled on the one light switch. So let me ask you, what do you really want to do in that moment? (laughs) I can't believe you guys. So I'm standing there, and uh, Deb Gossert, uh, administrative assistant, there was right behind her desk, and I said, Deb, come on. Come on, you can't. Like, I want to push this down. She said, don't do it. <laughs> like, Deb, who's in charge of the light switch? She said, Barry put this up there. Like, okay. So you know what I did? I texted Barry. <clears throat> Here's what I said to Barry Holt. I said, Barry, Do you have any idea how hard it is to walk away from my impulse on this one? What will happen? Question mark, question mark, question mark, exclamation, exclamation, exclamation. I took a picture and sent it to him. Here's what Barry said. Ha ha, whatever you do, don't put it down. (laughs) To which I said, "Arg!" He said, It just turns the outside porch light on. Nothing exciting. To which I said, that's so disappointing, I thought it shut off power to eastern Lancaster County or something. To which he said, that's the other switch. (laughs) I labeled this one to throw people off. (laughs) And then I back out of the conversation, well played, Barry. Well played. And that is what the law does to us, right? When we see something that says, don't touch. I want to. I didn't want to before. I did not want to before. I wouldn't have cared about the light switch. But you say, keep up, and it's... And I want to, I want, I want it. And that is what the law does. Look at, look at verse 20 again. This is exactly what Paul's saying. Verse 20, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. That is the light switch problem. The law is on the light switch. Don't push it down. And the trespass, if Deb wasn't there, I might have put it down. And the trespass whoop, would have increased because the law was there and my soul, my heart wanted to put it down. But look what happens. And this is the game changer. Look what happens in the text. Look, at, look what happens. But where sin increased, what should happen next? Where sin increased, condemnation should increase. That's the natural result. If, if sin increases, the next thing is then condemnation. Punishment. That's what happens when your kids blow it and they keep blowing it. What happens? Punishment. For clarity's sake, like get it, get it right. But here's what happens for the Christian. Here's what happens because of Christ. Where sin increased... Grace increased all the more. That is a game changer. Come on, come on. That's a game changer. What should come next when you fail and when your shortcomings land on you and when the impulse draws you down to say, I will never, what should increase and when you do blow it is condemnation. That's natural. That's why you feel like it's hard to hope again. But the gospel says, when sin increases... Grace increases all the more. Which is why you don't have to wait to rebuild trust with God like you have to rebuild trust with a spouse or with a friend. Because immediately upon sin and repentance, immediately grace is dispersed and the grace chases down your shortcoming and failure every time Every time, every time, every time. Which is why it is a mistake to live in condemnation. And this is why I said at the beginning, God's inevitable grace is more powerful than my inevitable shortcoming. It is, it is, it is, it is. And this is why I want to ask you the question. I want to ask you the question. This. Why go on condemning yourself for something God no longer condemns you for? Why do that? Why do that? Why go on waking up in the morning, remembering the sin and shame and failure of the past? Why go on doing that? Why go on wondering whether you can get over or not? Why wonder about that? Why do you continue to think, there's no hope again. My shortcomings are too powerful, too strong. Why do we go on condemning ourselves for the very things that God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, has said, you are now free. You are free from the condemnation that marks all of humanity. You are free from that. Why go on living any other way? Some of the answer is it's the only way, we know how, To live, to which I want to say, when you look in the mirror and you consider who you really are, please, please, please remember if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God, you are no longer a slave to fear to shame, to failure, to shortcomings. That God's inevitable grace always, always, always chases down and beats our inevitable shortcomings. So please, let me encourage you. Do not, please, do not continue condemning yourself for things that God has already justified you for. Imagine what it would look like if you could wake up tomorrow and look at your marriage a little differently. Look at your future a little differently. Look at your potential a little differently. Look at your character a little differently. (coughs) Hope a little differently because you remember that just as sin entered the world through one man has impacted us all. It's not fair but true. So too, grace, which is a more powerful force than my shortcomings, has entered the world through Jesus Christ. And that's not fair either. But boy, is it true. And that is more powerful a force than my condemnation. Do not, please, 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 do not go on condemning yourself for something that God has already freed you from. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word and the opportunity to stop and step into it to engage and and pause and reflect a little on who we are in light of your good gift of salvation. Father, we want to ask for courage and strength and wisdom to do what we know we need to do. I pray for us that you would help us to see ourselves well. I pray for our young people who need this reminder. I pray for our middle-aged people who need this reminder. I pray for those who are older who need this reminder. Father, we are people who walk together and in every stage of life can get stuck continuing to condemn ourselves for the sin, the failure, and the shame of the past forgetting the power of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, where we need to hope again, and we need to believe again, I pray that you would help us to do that. If there are those listening this morning who need that first step in relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray that today is the day. Let's have that conversation. Let's make that happen. To step into hope again. Father, above all, we thank you again for the truth of this final song that we're about to sing. That we are no longer slaves. We are no longer slaves to fear. We are no longer slaves to shame, condemnation, or anything else. But we are a child of God. Help us to live in the truth of that, we pray in Jesus' name.